0: Listener Supported, WNYC Studios. Listener Supported, WNYC Studios.
1: This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankowski. I'm sitting in for IRA this week. After many months of buildup, Christopher Nolan's latest blockbuster, Oppenheimer, is here. It tells the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, father of the atomic bomb, a man whose work ushered in the atomic age and changed the world forever. So with the release of this film, we're bringing you a live edition of Science Goes to the Movies, looking back at 80 years of nuclear history. We're going to explore how the first atomic bombs were built, how Oppenheimer led the charge, and what happened when they were deployed. Now, nobody understands this legacy more than our first guest, for whom Oppenheimer's work is all too personal. Setsuko Thurlow is a survivor of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. She's a Nobel Peace Prize laureate and an anti nuclear activist. Ira got a chance to speak with her earlier this week, and she joined him from Hiroshima. Now, this conversation may have some graphic and disturbing details, so please take care while listening. Setsuko, welcome to Science Friday.
2: Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you.
3: You're welcome. Can you uh, describe for us your memory of August 6,
2: 1945? Yes. I was a 13-year-old grade 8 student in a girl's junior high school. In those days, Japan was losing badly against the United States. And uh, uh, we were mobilized and recruited and mobilized to do the work for army. So, that day, I happened to be at the nearby Army Headquarters. I learned how to uh, decode secret messages for the Army. Can you imagine a 13-year-old girl engaged in that kind of task? Anyway, about 30 of us were at the Army Headquarters. And at 8 o'clock in the morning, we started the morning heavily. And then at that moment, I saw the bluish-white flash in the window. And I had the sensation of flying up into the air and floating in the air. And that was the end of my memory. When I regained consciousness in a total darkness, I found myself pinned under the collapsed building. I knew I was going to die. Then, suddenly, I started hearing my classmates' faith uh, voices. God help me. Mother help me. And although it happened 8 o'clock in the morning, 8.15 in the morning, by the time I came out, it was dark like twilight. And I started seeing some objects. And I called it ghosts because they simply didn't look like human beings, but they were in mess. The hair was rising up toward the sky, and the skin and the flesh were burned and blackness And uh, we learned how to step over the dead bodies. And in the dark, people were simply begging for water in a very faint, quiet voice. Nobody was yelling or screaming, asking for water. When the darkness fell, we sat on the hilltop and watched all night entire city burn. And next, next day I was united by my father who was out of town and my mother. But my older sister was married and had a four-year-old child who had been evacuated out of the city. But the very night before the bombing, she came back to the city to visit us. And early in the morning, she and the child were walking the bridge to the doctor's office. That's where they were simply (laughs) melted, really. I, I saw them the next day. They simply did not look like human beings. Soldiers came, dug up the hole in the ground, and threw the body in, poured the gasoline through the lighted match. That was the so called cremation of my dear people.
3: Thank you for sharing that story. It's been almost 80 years since uh, the bombs were dropped. Do you still see the effects of the bombing today? in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and on the Japanese people?
2: Well, yes. The uh, medical effects of that bomb, because of the radiation, that is affecting health of many, many survivors. By the end of 1945, 140,000 people were estimated to have lost lives in Hiroshima alone. Uh, innocent civilians Non-combatant in war. And that's one a very visible effect, and Hiroshima and Nagasaki both have the atomic bomb hospitals. They are still packed with the suffering people. I understand that a much higher rate of leukemia, a cancer of the blood among the survivors, another effect of that, which is a positive one as I see it. In spite of the personal tragedies, family tragedies, many survivors transcended their personal pain and they came out determined to spread this message to the world about the horror, of human suffering that bomb caused in Hiroshima. And we have devoted our lives speaking out against a nuclear weapon.
3: A, a debate has been going on for decades, as you know, about the rationale for dropping the bomb, uh, uh, saying that the, the, the bombing ended the war and saved the lives of 100,000 Americans who would have died during an invasion of the
2: mainland. What do you think when you hear that? I think that kind of statement was developed conveniently by the politician like uh, Mr Truman. Those things you just said are groundless and a lot of historical research, political research has been done and irresponsible statements were just convenient excuses for justifying what their decision um Anybody who knew the history, Japan had already been exhausted. They were not in the position to continue the war. And Japan was possibly preparing for the surrender. Then Mr. Truman knew this kind of historical fact. Well, the bomb was successfully exploded, I think, in July the 16th. So with that, the Americans wanted to use those most as quickly
3: as possible. I'd like to ask you about that bomb test, because that is the focus of a new film that has put uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer in the spotlight once again. Uh, what do you think of him and his participation and his legacy?
2: Well, Toget was successful, obviously he rejoiced. Apparently he was delighted as a scientist. But something happened and by the time he was asked to consider the next project of a hydrogen bomb, he was not prepared to accept that responsibility. He was against that. After all, hydrogen bomb was a thousand times more destructive than atomic bombs. Toward the end, he was against production of such Horrible tool of mass murder. As a scientist, he made the choice to be part of that project. I think he has a personal responsibility for all, for all of this mess.
3: You have campaigned against the use of nuclear weapons all these years. And now again, we hear talk about it being used, uh, the Russians possibly threatening Ukraine with them. What is your reaction to that?
2: I was sick to the stomach for a couple of weeks after that war broke out. I literally lost sleep, even appetite. I identified with the suffering of the people in Ukraine. I remembered my own experience in a wartime. Certainly what Putin did is unacceptable. And the war must end immediately, and all those faith in nuclear weapons, accumulating all those weapons, exhausting all the resources, billions and billions of dollars, when the unfortunate situation like this happens, you can't even touch them because that would create even worse tragedy, particularly the end of the world.
3: Is there is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with? Any last thoughts?
2: I and many other survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and together with the survivors of the areas around the world from over two thousand nuclear weapon testing by the nuclear weapon states, we have been speaking out against the use of the nuclear weapon. We must eliminate, we must ban them. But nuclear weapon states have not really paid any attention to what we have been saying. The majority of the world nations voted for the UN treaty to prohibit the use of nuclear weapons. But nuclear weapon states are not accepting it. They are poo-pooing it. That is not good. And we are delighted. Finally, majority of the world, 122 nations have accepted that. And that's our hope and dream. Humanity must continue to live. The planet must continue. And nobody has the right to treat the rest of the world as a hostage of this nuclear horror. 78 years have passed That's too long. Let's not wait any longer.
3: I want to thank you very much for talking with us today.
2: It's painful to remember and to talk like this, but I am glad you gave me the opportunity. I hope my American friends pay some attention
1: to survive this world. Setsuko Thurlow is a Nobel Peace Prize laureate and anti-nuclear activist, speaking there with Ira Flato. After the break, we get to know J. Robert Oppenheimer and how the first atomic bombs came to be. And we're going to take your calls.
0: Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Give us a ring, 844-724-8255, or tweet us at SciFry. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankowski. This hour, we're looking back at J. Robert Oppenheimer's life and legacy and how it shaped the world we live in with his biography hitting the big screen today. So we're digging into what you should know before you see the film. My next guest may know Oppenheimer better than anybody else. Kai Bird is the co-author of American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. It's the book that Christopher Nolan's film is based on. Kyberg joins me now from WAMU in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Science Friday.
4: Thank you, John, for having me. I've been waiting for this moment for decades, literally.
1: Uh, yes, I, I can imagine. <laughs> I'm glad we have you here to talk about it. Before we dive into the story, though, I'm wondering if you could just give me your reaction to what we just heard from Setsuko Thurlow, the Hiroshima survivor and activist.
4: Yes, it's a very moving story. It's, uh, you know, a history from, from the ground, and uh, it's shocking to hear a survivor's tale. Um, uh, very sad and uh, difficult to listen to. You, you, of course, wrote the book that the new
1: film is based on, and you said you've been waiting for some time. What is it like seeing this story come to life like this?
4: Well, you know, my late co-author, Marty Sherwin, is no longer with us. He died in 2021, but he spent 20 years on this project, and then he brought me aboard, and it took us another five years. So the book was in the making for 25 years, mm-hmm. and it came out 18 years ago. And now suddenly we're getting uh, a lot of attention because Christopher Nolan has used the book to, to do a... Uh, magisterial biography on film. It's just an incredible uh, artistic achievement. And as the biographer, I have to say, I'm just gratified that the film is really authentic and uh, historically accurate. Right
1: now we're going to be digging into some of the history and and whether or not in, in our audience you plan to see the film or not, we would love to hear from you. What do you want to know about the Manhattan Project? What questions do you have about Oppenheimer and his legacy? You can call us, 844-724-8255, or you can tweet us at SciFry. So, Kai, why don't you take us back to the 1940s? Why did we rush to build an atomic
4: weapon? Well, Oppenheimer was motivated to do this uh, precisely because he uh, uh, feared that the German scientists with whom he had studied in Germany in the 1920s were as perfectly capable as he was of, of... building the so-called gadget and he feared that they were going to give it to Hitler and that Hitler would use the an atomic bomb to win the war for for fascism so this was his motivation and he was desperate he knew that the Germans were probably or he felt that the Germans were uh, ahead of in the race to build this weapon by uh, as much as 18 months Um, and He worked very hard to build this secret city called Los Alamos and gather some 6,000 scientists and engineers eventually. And in two and a half years, somewhat of a miracle, they managed to uh, put this gadget together and test it at Trinity. Uh, on July sixteenth, nineteen
1: forty-five. And before we get into some of the history, though, I'm just wondering if you could give us a little bit of context. You talk about the German scientists that he studied with back in the nineteen twenties. What exactly was being talked about in the scientific community at that time? What did what were they thinking about the possibility of building a weapon like this?
4: Well, as a young man, uh, when Oppenheimer was studying physics in Germany, he was on the cusp of learning about quantum physics. Uh, and in the 1920s, they didn't realize what, you know, that uh, a bomb could be made. But by 1939, fission had been discovered, and Oppenheimer and every other quantum physicist in the world understood immediately that this was a possibility. It, The physics was there. Uh, it, w- it became simply a engineering Feat about whether it could be built. Th-
1: this engineering feat that you've already described, uh, building it and pulling off the Manhattan Project in just a few short years, it it really was a remarkable how they turned the United States into essentially a factory to make this weapon. T- tell us a little bit more about that incredible history.
4: Well, the the engineering feat was uh, came down to refining. Uh, enriched uranium, and uh, also plutonium, these very rare uh, materials that would be have the size of a grapefruit, essentially, at the core of the weapon. And then built around it were um, uh, high explosives that would squeeze the plutonium and ignite it and create an atomic atomic bomb, and it, it took, you know, months of testing and explosive experiments, and uh, it was uh, very difficult to manufacture the plutonium and the enriched uranium. Uh, they started out with literally a handful of marble size uh, elements of both of these materials, and it it took two and a half years to manufacture the, the materials.
1: Were the scientists who were working on this project were they completely aware of what exactly they were building at the time?
4: Oh yes, they understood that the gadget was uh, a weapon of mass destruction. Um, now, you know, there were many people at Hiroshima at Los Los Alamos who were not clued in to exactly the nature of the of what they were building, but the core scientists and chemists and and engineers that Oppenheimer recruited were well aware of what they were building. And there, there was ambivalence about it, too. There were, you know, Oppenheimer himself was quite ambivalent about the, the weapon. And just after July 16, 1945, after the successful Trinity test, uh, he was walking to work one day, with his secretary, Ann Wilson, who I interviewed here in Washington in Georgetown, where she was retired at the time. And she, she told me she was walking to work with Oppenheimer and he suddenly started mumbling to her, Those poor little people, those poor little people. And she stopped him and said, Robert, what are you talking about? And he said, Well, you know, the Trinity test was successful, it worked. And now it's going to be uh, detonated on a Japanese city, because that's the only target that's large enough for such a weapon. And the victims are going to be largely women and children and old men and civilians, those poor little people. Hmm. Now, what's interesting about this story is that um, we realized Marty and I realized that it, chronologically, this... Conversation that Oppenheimer had with his secretary was in the same very week that he was briefing the bombardiers who were going to be on the airplane and instructing them at exactly what altitude the bomb should be detonated for the mac- most maximum destructive impact and that it should be dropped on the center of the city, not on the periphery. And, uh, you know, so he knew exactly what he was doing. And he was extremely ambivalent. He was doing his duty, he thought, carrying out his responsibility to present the gadget to the policymakers back in Washington for them to decide how it would be used. But he was also in his head was, uh, you know, he was very aware of and empathetic for the human tragedy that was about to happen. And of course,
1: we've talked a bit about the human tragedy in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but there's also quite a bit of a human tragedy in the places where nuclear weapons were tested. Um, but before we, we turn more to that conversation, why exactly did did they choose New Mexico as the place to, to test the gadget in the summer of
4: 1945? Well, this was all about Oppenheimer. Uh, you know, as a young man, when he was 18 years old, his parents in New York City sent him off one summer to a dude ranch in New Mexico. And he fell in love, this sort of uh, very non-athletic New York City boy, he fell in love with New Mexico and the high mesa and the deserts and the mountains and, and horseback riding. And he later told his brother Frank that his His ambition in life was to somehow find a way to combine his love for quantum physics with his love for New Mexico. And uh, he did. (laughs) Uh, He was the one who suggested to the head of the Manhattan Project, General Leslie Groves, that uh, they should really build a secret city in Los Alamos on the high desert plain very isolated territory, and uh, that would provide them with absolute secrecy. But the scientists gathered inside, behind the barbed wire fence, would be able to collaborate together, to converse, to figure out how to build this gadget. And uh, well, Los Alamos was just uh, a few miles down the road from Oppenheimer's own ranch that he loved so much. So he he did succeed in combining quantum physics with New Mexico. So so interesting.
1: Uh, we're going to get to some of your phone calls in, in just a moment, but I want to bring into the conversation someone of, from New Mexico who's been dealing with this and thinking about this for quite some time. The first victims of nuclear warfare were the downwinders. People were harmed by the nuclear fallout and still are to this day. Uh, Tina Cordova is co-founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Tina, welcome to Science Friday.
5: Hi John, thank you so much for inviting me to participate. I'm glad to be here.
1: I'm so glad that you're here. Maybe you can talk about how your life and the life of people you know has been affected by the Manhattan Project.
5: Well, I think it's important to note that there would have been no Manhattan Project and no Trinity test um, without the people of New Mexico actually. Uh, the people of New Mexico, first of all, had their land taken by eminent domain to establish Los Alamos Labs, and um, you know they were made to do all the dirtiest of jobs. We built the roads and the bridges and the facilities, and I always say that they bust the Native women and the Hispanic women up to Los Alamos to to cook every meal, uh, clean every house, change every diaper, and their husbands were bust up there too to clean the instrumentation of radiation. And, you know, we were also the people that mined uranium. Uh, A large part of the uranium belt of the American West is in New Mexico. And across Navajo lands, Laguna and Acoma Pueblo, they extracted 32 million tons of uranium, the uranium that was used to build these bombs. Uh, And then... You know, we were the people that lived adjacent to the Trinity site, worked on establishing that area as well, and um, were basically victims of the bomb. And so, you know, the government came here, they invaded our lands and our lives, they developed and tested nuclear devices, dumped the waste for years in the canyons around Los Alamos, uh, have left the mine and mill sites unabated and then detonated this really dirty bomb uh, in an area that they always describe as remote and and uninhabited. But the reality is we know, because we've done the research using 1940 census data, that there were about 15,000 children, women, and men living in a 50-mile radius to the Trinity test site. And if you extend that radius to 150 miles, you're talking about half a million people. Today, in the New York Times, there's a new article about the actual fallout mapping, a a young man from princeton uh... a scientist there has recreated the blast using today's technology and what we know about weather patterns and the fallout that that was developed after trinity was significant blanketed the entire state of new mexico and i believe the article says most of the united states and parts of other countries so And this was a big happening. Mm-hmm. And, and and of course, there are consequences associated with being overexposed to radiation. And that's what we have been left with. That's the legacy mm-hmm. for us of Trinity.
1: Yeah, and if you do get a chance to, to see this New York Times piece, you really will see where the fallout could go across the entire United States. I want to tell our listeners that this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. And we're talking about the film Oppenheimer and some of the nuclear legacy in America and around the world. We'll get to your phone calls in just a moment. 844 724 8255. And Tina, of course, there's quite a bit of fallout directly in your family as well, health effects that have gone through generations. That's correct.
5: Um, I'm the fourth generation in my family to have cancer since 1945. I had two great grandfathers living in Tularosa, approximately 45 miles from ground zero. Uh, Both of them developed stomach cancer in 1955. There was no medical access to medical care for them. They were basically told they had stomach cancer. They were given morphine. They were sent home to die, and that happened in a very short period of time. Both my grandmothers on my maternal and paternal side had cancer. My dad died uh, after having three different cancers that he didn't have risk factors for. He developed two primary oral cancers. My dad didn't smoke, didn't drink excessively, didn't use chewing tobacco, had no viruses. And when I asked the doctors, how does this happen? They said, it's incredibly rare, but we see a lot of it in New Mexico. And then when I was 39, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And the first question they asked me was, when were you exposed to radiation? In my family, we now have a fifth generation. I have a 23-year-old niece studying art in California and college and she was diagnosed in November with thyroid cancer Mm -hmm. as well and it's obviously upended her life and I've lost count of my aunts and uncles, cousins uh, who have either lived with cancer, died from cancer, etc. and I wish I could say that my family was unique but we are not. Mm -hmm. We've documented hundreds of families that are now displaying four and five generations of cancer. as a result of our exposure to radiation. We are the first victims of an atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. And while we may not have died that day, it was the beginning of the end for so very many of us.
1: Uh, Tina, hang, hang on for just a second. I want to get some phone calls. We're, we're getting a call from Brad here, who is in Wisconsin. Go ahead, Brad, quickly, if you would.
3: <laughs> yes. My father was in Hiroshima a month after they dropped the atomic bomb. He was part of the cleanup in the United States Marines and he died of leukemia in 1968 at 43 years old, and the doctors told him because of his exposure to atomic radiation.
1: My goodness, Brad, thank you so much for sharing the story, and I think we've got some more people on the line who would like to share some of their stories. When we come back from our break, we'll get some response and talk more with Kai Bird, the co-author of American Prometheus, and also Tina Cordova, uh, who is co-founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium.
0: Business data is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: After the break, we're going to be talking about grappling with the ethics of nuclear weapons and the legacies of the people who created them. You can join our conversation. Please stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. This hour, we're reckoning with a legacy of the Manhattan Project and the responsibilities of scientists. There's a new film, Oppenheimer, out just now. Kai Bird is co-author of American Prometheus, the triumph and tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, on which the movie is based. Tina Cordova also joins us. She is co-founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, talking about some of the impacts right here in America— of these weapons. Let's get to the phones. If you want to join us, 844 724 8255. Let's go to John, who's calling from Birmingham, Alabama. Hi there, John. You're on Science Friday.
6: Yes. I'd like to know if the uh, Los Alamos scientist ever thought of uh, dropping
4: the bomb in the ocean off the coast of Japan or on an island that wasn't inhabited. Therefore, thousands of lives would have been saved.
1: It's a good question. Uh, Kai?
4: Well, yes, this was bandied about briefly—a um, demonstration, uh, uh, some some place off the coast of Japan, or in Tokyo Harbor, or there was even a proposal to uh, drop it on Mount Fuji as a demonstration of the power of the bomb. But none of these were seriously considered by General Leslie Groves, in whose hands it was really the decision-making on how to use this weapon. And Truman himself never considered it seriously. Uh, there were there were arguments on behalf of this notion by some of the scientists at Los Alamos. Um, and there was also discussion, actually, about whether or not they should even continue to work on the bomb project uh, after the spring of 1945 when it was clear that Germany was defeated. Um, they... You know, Most of the scientists understood that Japan was not capable, did not have a similar bomb project, and uh, so therefore the urgency of building this thing they thought was uh, had been taken away by the fact that the Germans had already been defeated. But in the end, uh, the General Groves and the other decision-makers in the War Department and Oppenheimer to some extent uh, believed that the war had to end with a uh, dramatic demonstration of the power and the awfulness of this weapon. And Oppenheimer himself made the argument that he got from Niels Bohr, the famous Danish physicist, uh, that if the weapon was not demonstrated in combat uh, in this war, then the next war might be fought by two adversaries, both of whom would be armed with nuclear weapons, and that would mean Armageddon. And Oppenheimer understood that the weapon was terrible, but he didn't think that people would understand how terrible it was until it was actually used.
1: I want to bring into the conversation Dr. Zia Meehan, physicist and co-director of the Program on Science and Global Security at Princeton University, based in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Dr. Meehan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. We're talking a lot about the responsibility of scientists and what exactly happens with the things that they create. I want you to tell a story that's a very telling sneak peek into the Manhattan Project. And this is Fermi's wager. Maybe you can tell us about this and what exactly it tells us about how scientists were thinking at that time.
7: Yeah, so this is a fascinating story. So as the Manhattan Project scientists at Los Alamos, were thinking through the physics of what happens when a nuclear explosion driven by a chain reaction happens, the possibility emerged that the intensity of the explosion might actually set the atmosphere on fire, and that this fire would run all the way around until it used up all the air in the whole world. And that by setting off one explosion, you would basically burn the planet completely and make it uninhabitable. And so they argued over the physics of this for quite a long time, all the way up to the Trinity test itself in July 1945, where Enrico Fermi, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, took bets among the Manhattan Project scientists at the test site about the chances of setting the world on fire. And right to the last minute, they weren't certain that they would not destroy the planet, but they were willing to do the experiment to find out.
1: Just even as you say that, it sends chills up and down your spine. I mean, how exactly did the scientists justify this? The idea that that maybe, indeed, they were playing with the life and health of the entire planet.
7: I think that this speaks to a core question about the sense of responsibility. The scientists believed that what they were trying to do was to understand the way the world works. And the scientific question was, that did their understanding meet the way that the world actually works and it was worth finding out.
1: It was worth finding out and also, I mean, you and others have, have talked about the fact that many of the scientists who were involved didn't actually think that this bomb would ever be deployed. They knew what they were creating, but it was indeed President Truman who gave the order to, to drop the bomb. Did the scientists believe that this would really be deployed in the way that it was?
7: I think many of them did not imagine this. And this goes back to even before the Manhattan Project. As long ago as 1940, years before the Manhattan Project began, the first idea of building the atomic bomb was actually proposed in a secret memo by scientists to the British government. And in that memo, they predicted the effects of a nuclear explosion and the first prediction of nuclear fallout being carried by the wind and poisoning everything it touched wherever the wind was blowing. And in that memo, they said, this property of atomic weapons, of nuclear fallout that goes with the wind, means you will always kill civilians. And they said, this may make it unusable as a weapon by Britain. And they believed that decision makers, politicians would be responsible enough not to actually do something so terrible. And I think the Manhattan Projects deep down had the same sense that really, if you understood what this would do, you really wouldn't use it.
1: I want to get to the phones, 844-724-8255. People have some questions. Kahala is calling from Prairie Grove, Arkansas. Hi there. You're on Science Friday. Hi. Hi. What's on your mind?
6: Well, I was just thinking about this as I was listening to the program, um, that growing up I was taught in history class that one of the reasons um, Truman authorized dropping the bomb was to save lives and that the reasoning was the Japanese would never surrender, um, that it would be better to drop the bomb now and potentially save lives. So based on the data that we have now um, and seeing the fourth and fifth generation impact, um, was that wager correct?
1: So, Zia, what, what do you say? This is obviously something a lot of us were taught in school a long time ago.
7: I think that there is now enough historical material available to put into question the entire premise of how many American military lives might be saved. But the first question is that you're trading soldiers who are going to war against the lives of civilians. And that's not often the way that the question is put. You're talking about saving the lives of soldiers by deliberately killing civilians. Mm-mm. The it, it, second question is, yeah. how many soldiers did you think might die? And it turns out that the idea of saving a million American lives, etc., that was part of the story after the war was made up after the war to justify the bombing. There is no contemporary historical evidence in the documents secret, which have since been declassified to show that anybody thought that that many lives, soldiers' lives, would actually be lost in a full-scale invasion of Japan.
1: And of course, Tina, so much of of your life has been devoted to speaking out for the people here in America whose lives have also been upended, lives that have ended because of the testing that happened on American soil.
5: That's correct. And, you know, as people view this movie that's going to premiere this weekend, I, I hope that people will realize that there's a counter-narrative to all of this, uh, that American citizens were harmed, that innocent children died in the months afterwards, because a lot of people don't understand the entire history. In New Mexico, we had a spike in infant mortality in the months just after Trinity. We went from losing something like 30 babies per thousand to losing over 100 babies per thousand. And I always say there were casualties of Trinity. These young babies died because their little bodies could not overcome the radiation load that they were receiving, not only from, you know, the the environmental radiation, but because their mothers were concentrating radiation in their mammary glands. And so, you know, there's there's this, uh, to me, in my mind, and, and remember that I'm a downwinder, I have suffered greatly. Um, in my mind, we over-sensationalize the science and the scientists sometimes, and we don't reflect on the counter-narrative about the damage that was done to american citizens and and other people in in japan most notably and so you know i have been fighting uh... for eighteen years now to bring attention to this and for thirteen years now to get the radiation exposure compensation act amended to include the people of new mexico because the u.s government has been taking care of Downwinders from other parts of our country, but it's never taken care of us, the first people exposed to radiation any place in the world as a result of an atomic bomb.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: We want people to understand and know this history and join in this fight with us because we suffered greatly and we continue to suffer. And there's no end for us. You know, the plutonium in the bomb uh, has a half life of 24,000 years, and that radioactive isotope was spread all across New Mexico as part of this project. And so we just, we don't see an end to this for us. And um, we certainly deserve to be recognized and taken care of as a result of being enlisted into this, this test,
1: into this project. Let, let's go back to the phones. Uh, Emily is calling from Athens in Alabama. Hi there, Emily. Go ahead. You're on Science Friday. Hi, Emily. Are you there? Let let me just put Emily on hold there, and maybe we'll get to her call in just a moment. Uh, Kai, with all of this talk uh, that we've just had about the decision to drop the bomb on Hiroshima and also the decision to explode a bomb in, in New Mexico, Oppenheimer famously felt guilty later for what he did. You talked about that guilt maybe setting in just after the Trinity test site. What else do we know about how he felt about the bomb during that time?
4: Uh, we know quite a bit. We know that he actually, according to his, his wife Kitty's letters to her friends, right after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he plunged into a deep depression, and she feared for his life. And he, you know, essentially spent the rest of his life trying to warn uh, Americans and others about the dangers of these weapons. He And, uh, you know, if he was with us today, he would decry the complacency that has grown up over the decades around the bomb. And, uh, you know, as a scientist, he'd, I think, very much want to be uh, paying attention to the concerns that Tina has raised and the concerns of the survivors under the bomb at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, uh, you know, the film, I think, is going to be very useful in jump-starting a national conversation about all of these issues, about the dangers of these weapons, the need to contain them, the environmental consequences, but also the film, I should say, you know, it, it is biographical and it tells you his whole story. And, you know, there was the story of the Manhattan Project and the building of the bomb, but then nine years later, Robert Oppenheimer is humiliated and tarred and feathered and brought down in a kangaroo court proceeding that took place in the spring of 1954 at the height of McCarthyism, of the witch hunts of that era. And he became the chief celebrity victim of the whole McCarthy era. And I think the film uh, focuses a lot on that trial and Mm -hmm. will be a heavy reminder of the McCarthyism, the seeds of which planted, are mm. very divisive politics today. Uh, so it's it's a chance for a big history lesson all around. This is Science Friday from
1: WNYC Studios. Uh, we have Emily now. Um, Emily was calling from Athens, Alabama. Actually, sort of on the point that we were just raising. Uh, go ahead, Emily.
6: Yes, I'm a retired science teacher, and I used to show the the movie Fat Man and Little Boy in class, because we would study atomic science, and then to give it a historical context, we would look at that movie. Uh, We also have a nuclear plant here in our county, so, you know, I felt it was important for them to understand the peacetime use versus wartime use. Uh, But when I watched the trailer for the Oppenheimer movie, this other movie is ingrained in my mind (laughs) so one question is um, contrasting the two films um, what might I notice it was different and then the other question is about education Um, is this movie going to be good for teenagers to go to like if I were still teaching would I load up the whole class on a bus and go mm.
1: see it? It's a really good question. And, and Zia, I'll put it to you. I think you just watched the movie, didn't you?
7: Yes, I just came out of the theater before coming online.
1: Okay, so what would you tell Emily in her class?
7: I think that the movie requires um, preparing young people for that experience because I think that having them able to process the information that they will be exposed to is going to be enormously important, because the film can be very overwhelming. Just as the nuclear age itself has been so overwhelming, and we've been talking about, you know, uh, Trinity downwinders that that Tina and uh, her family and others and their experience. But some of the work that was just reported today in the New York Times done by my colleagues at Princeton showed that the explosion from Trinity spread fallout all over the United States you know with large amounts of radioactivity deposited in Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, Arizona, Idaho, lots of other places. So lots of people are exposed and the larger exposure of the whole world to the consequences of nuclear weapons. We're still living with that. So I think you're going to have to prepare young people for the kind of conversations that they're going to want to have. Yeah.
1: And among the conversations, we just have a little bit of time left, Zia, but I I should ask, are, are scientists responsible for the things they create? I mean, this is a core question in this movie and in this entire dialogue.
7: Absolutely. Why should scientists be held to any different standard than any other human being for the responsibility of the actions that they undertake?
1: There's so much more to talk about. And I think as many people see the film, there's going to be a lot of discussion across America and across the world. I want to thank Dr. Zia Meehan, who's a physicist and co-director of the Program on Science and Global Security at Princeton University. I want to thank Tina Cordova, co-founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, and also Kai Bird, co-author of the book American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Thank you all so much for your time. And thanks to all the great questions from our listeners. Also, thanks to our friends at WAMU in Washington, D.C. for their help today. If you're interested in learning more, we've put together some resources and viewing guides for you. Go to sciencefriday.com slash atomic. That's sciencefriday.com slash atomic. Atomic. If you missed any part of the program or you'd like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts. You can ask the smart speaker to play Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky, and we'll see you next week.